Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Because if somebody just says Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a bad dude and let's <laughs> hope God comes in and saves us, that's not as effective as right. saying, I found this text from this ancient prophet. And this ancient prophet says, don't know who this is, but there's a person who's going to be coming who's a really bad dude, and God's going to deliver us, injecting it with that artificial um, antiquity. And this notion of real prophecy provides a lot more power, a lot more authority to the text. Hey, everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? I mean, I don't know if you should call me Dan. Maybe you should call me Belteshazzar. Beltel, Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. No, it's got to be your bull. Um, <laughs> what? Now we watched yeah. uh, we watched Tommy Boy the other night. I had to show my girls. And so was... <laughs> yeah, uh, we're diving into uh, the book that after which you and I are both named our namesake. Uh, yes, ostensibly, uh, Daniel is a book in the Bible. I don't know if you guys knew that, yeah. but uh, I assume you did. You're all and uh, I don't know if fewer people probably knew that if you look at our old um, cover image for our podcast, you can yeah. see some Hebrew letters in the background. If you look in the upper right, you see the Hebrew Daniel. So yeah, uh, a even on our even for, on our web uh, on our YouTube, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's like Hebrew letters sort of swirling around us, and the, and uh, one of them might be that that name. I don't know how how it's cropped. Yeah, but yeah, we so you you chose that image specifically because we were both Daniels and that's we fun thought that would be funny. Yeah, so because little, little Easter egg for you, everybody, because yeah. um, we're eleven years old. We <laughs> might as well be. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So let's just dive in because yeah, we we got a lot to cover. Yeah, it, you know, growing up, I'm going to say this, Dan. Say growing it. up, uh, I I obviously felt some sort of connection to this book just because it was my name and there and it has one of the cooler stories in the bible and that is the lion's den story daniel gets thrown into a lion's den i don't want to bury the lead here but that's <laughs> kind of all i remembered from it so yeah when i when i dove back into it uh to prep for this segment uh for this episode i was confused I'm just going to say it. This book is a mess. Yeah. This, they needed to employ any amount of writing skill uh, or narrative structure or anything. It is, I don't, I have a hunch you're going to tell me a lot of interesting stuff about how this book came to be and the fact that this book, I, if I've learned one thing from doing this show with you for as long as we've been doing this show it is that there is no way one person wrote this book. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into what's going on with some of the literary structure and uh, and yeah, it's gonna get weird as it so frequently does uh, on our show. And I, I think with with texts like Daniel, you have two different you have a spectrum of people's awareness of Daniel. On one end, you've got the people who have sat down and read it beginning to end, and those people are messed up in the head because <laughs> Daniel messes you up in the head. On the other end, you have people who have basically heard stories from it. They're aware of a few different, uh, sometimes proof texts, sometimes specific stories from Daniel. You know Daniel in the lion's den. You know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace and from the great poets, um, the Beastie Boys. Uh, and so... <laughs> 
there's a lot of just uh, kind of random spotty knowledge about the book of Daniel in the zeitgeist and uh, and in the air. And that's how I think the majority of people know about Daniel, but have never read, uh, sat down and read it from beginning to end, which is um, is no small feat. That's a tall order to begin with. I mean, Um, it's not a long book, uh, but in biblical standards, by biblical standards, it's not, you know, it's it's what, 12 chapters, 12 chapters, 12, you know, dense chapters, dense and uh, and also Hard to read sometimes. Yes. You know, you get into you get into a lot of lists uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time that are repeated. I, as a guy with ADHD, this book is killer. <laughs> I gotta say, yeah, and and repetition was an important part of uh, of some of the literary conventions anciently. But mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the more interesting things that a lot of people, uh, the people who have come at Daniel academically, uh, or at least from a more concerted devotional perspective are aware that it's actually written in two different languages. See, Daniel is uh, written in Hebrew from uh, Daniel 1.1 to the first half of Daniel 2.4. And then the second half of Daniel 2.4 is written in Aramaic. And it is Aramaic from there all the way through to Daniel 7 verse 28, or the very end of, of chapter 7. And then beginning in chapter 8, we revert back to Hebrew all the way okay. through to the end of chapter 12. And so um, it is, when you're reading it in the original languages, it's odd. It's a little confusing. Yeah. But uh, And one of the more confusing thing f- things for scholars is that this division, this Hebrew, then Aramaic, then back to Hebrew, does not align with the main division of the book. Because we have chapters 1 through 6, which are court tales, where we're telling these stories about Daniel and Daniel's companions and the kings of uh, of Babylon, Media, and Persia, and we're going to get to what on earth Media is doing there. <laughs> and then chapters seven through twelve are basically apocalyptic visions, right? And oddly enough, even that division, that simple dividing in half, one through six and seven through twelve doesn't align with how scholars think the text actually came together. And so I uh, I didn't know exactly we don't we don't have a, an outline for for today's episode. As usual, we're just going to wing it and uh, and hopefully things work out. But uh, what do we you have think great ma- wings? There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> what uh, what do you think uh, makes the most sense? Do you want to talk about how the text came together, language, uh, the uh, dating, authorship, all this, and then get into the details? Or do you want to talk about some of the details? Let's let's sort of walk through the book first as you encounter it. uh, And then we'll understand. And then then maybe you can bring in some understanding about like where, uh, why it is what it is. Okay. And Um, this is... This is pretty simple because the chapters are kind of self-contained in a lot of ways. You yeah. have one story per chapter. Yeah, and, uh, and they don't necessarily they don't go uh, in chronological order. Right. They they bounce around chron- chronologically. Mm-hmm. They don't always agree with each other as to like what has happened. They, it does seem like there's some. Uh, Huh? What? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of like a sitcom where it was like everybody was happy, and then the next episode starts with everybody's angry. Right. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it is a little sitcomish in in that sense. Yeah, it does um, feel. Yeah, it feels. Uh, a, these are each very distinct, and they all start sort of in the middle of something, and they all and they end abruptly, and it's uh, it it's yeah, it's crazy. Chapter one sort of introduces Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. who who is the king of uh, what's his area called Babylonia. Mm-hmm. Born in Babylonia, moved to Arizona. <laughs> can you king Nebuchadnezzar? By the way, can you? What's the difference? <laughs> is there a difference between Babylonia and Babylon? What is that? Uh, Babylon's a city. Babylonia is a term that people used to use to refer to like the broader region. Uh, um, yeah, but. It's, okay. Nobody, nobody really says Babylonia much anymore in the scholarship. Okay. So, so what was he the king of then? He was the king of Babylon. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and so Daniel starts with the 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 destruction of Jerusalem, the exile, and we have Nebuchadnezzar saying, "Send me people from the royal families, from among the elites. We're going to train them up for three years, and then they're going to be our court officials and things like that." Okay. Um, and but then, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
He doesn't just say that. He says, send me your sexy boys who are super, super smart. He says, send me your, your handsome boys who are, uh, who, who are without blemish. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a little, it's a, it starts out, we launch with a little bit of uh, questionable. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I would say that what's going on here is this idea that uh, for court officials, you want people who are going to be squeaky clean and who are going to look nice. So yeah. I don't know that it's so much uh, uh, and um, kind of an erotic thing as... Uh, very similar to in ancient Israel, you want your sacrifices to be without blemish and to be pretty. Um, yeah, okay. And so here it's like if we're gonna if we're gonna take these folks and we're gonna train them and turn them into our court officials, we need the people who are um, you know tall enough, who are slim enough, who look uh, nice enough. So uh, I think that's probably what's going on. Although at the same time, there there were that kind of um, homoeroticism was not absent from Babylon. Right. Uh, and uh, you also had uh, eunuchs who were going to be in charge of, of different kinds of things. So there's a lot we don't know about this, partly right. because we're the text was written in a much later period and we don't know to what degree they're just kind of making up stuff about two centuries before and the degree to which they have some kind of access to knowledge that we may not have about what's going on in these courts. Yeah. I even had a question, you, you know, you mentioned eunuchs and I, you know, in one version, cause I, this is why this, this is why this job is hard. Uh, but I, I, I'm reading in two versions, you know what I mean? Cause I'm trying to understand I'm trying to see differences mm-hmm. as I'm reading. Uh, so in in I think in the, in uh, the NRSV, it says that you know that the palace uh, guy, the the anyway the, the 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 guy in charge of the palace is the one that Daniel is dealing with, and blah blah blah. I think this is in chapter two. In the King James version, it says the eunuch master is the one who's who's doing this, and I was like. Is Daniel, are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are, Dan, are they eunuchs? Is that possible? I mean, uh, lots of things are possible. Uh, I don't, I don't know that that fits any uh, any current thinking about Daniel. Let me just. Um... Well, I'm starting the thinking now. <laughs> I, I do have to say, sorry, I'm bouncing around a lot. I apologize, but also <laughs> in uh, chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, among the handsome genius boys are Daniel and not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but mm-hmm. rather Hannah, Hannah, Hananiah, mm-hmm. Mishael, and mm-hmm. Azariah. Right. And they're all given, all of them, including Daniel, are given other names. Belteshazzar for Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the other, yeah. other guys. And this book cannot decide what to call anybody. Like as you go through the book, Daniel yeah, bounces back and, back and forth. forth. Yeah. The 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 other three at one they stay Hananiah, Mishael and Azraya uh for a bit and then suddenly they flip and once they flip they're yeah. just Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego for the rest of the thing. It's it's confusing. And this is this is one of the pieces of data that points in the direction of originally independent stories being brought together and being harmonized. Ah. And so that's what, and and so chapter one is kind of an intro to what's going on, which was probably added a bit later. And what they're doing there is saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> these are the same people. They were just like, your name is now this. And now, so when you see us bouncing back and forth, just keep in mind, those are the same people. And it's a right. way to, I don't know if there's a name for this kind of activity. It's not poisoning the well. It's kind of sweetening the well. You're, right. yeah, you're, yeah. you're kind of uh, leading them into a specific interpretive framework to gloss over the inconsistencies. It's dumping a bunch of Kool-Aid into the well. Yeah. Okay. I did find uh, I did find this. This is coming from Carol Newsom's 2014 commentary on Daniel. By the way, I would highly recommend if you want more on Daniel, more that you're gonna than you're going to hear from us today, and a lot less moronic as well. Um, <laughs> we've got John Collins, his 1993 Hermeneia commentary series 
commentary on Daniel is one of the best. And then the other one that I would say is one of the best is Carol Newsom's 2014 Old Testament library commentary on Daniel. But from uh, Newsom's commentary, we've got this statement uh, on Daniel's identity. And this is, um, this is actually um, an article written by somebody else. But they say, talking about Daniel's appearance... In many contexts, his beardless face, handsome visage, and court status suggest his particular identity as a court eunuch. Foreign youths serving in many imperial courts throughout history were not typically allowed to do so unless they had been castrated, and many readers have assumed the same rule held for Daniel. So I guess there is uh, some thinking in that direction. Um, I'm, like, I'm like a Bible scholar, Dan. I don't know if you realize <laughs> this. Just so, without any of the training. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some folks out there who are thinking right now, just get to the damn point. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's go through the chapters real quick. Um, okay. chapter one, we get the introduction of Daniel, his companions. We get the little, by the way, the, this is, uh, they changed their names. And then we get the story about the food, mm. uh, where, uh, they're like, we're going to give you some of the King's portion, which would have been quite the honor. They're going to eat the, uh, one there was not a lot of meat available back then. So meat and the king's wine. And so there's a lot of uh, kind of power and authority associated with this. We're going to you know, fill you full of the king's meat and wine, and this will make you powerful. And, um, and Daniel says, um, no, thank you. We're just going to eat. Um, it, we have this word that means seeds. And mm. it's not clear if it's like we're just going to eat handfuls of seeds or if we're going to eat stuff grown from seeds, if it's like a yeah, vegetarian Yeah, NRSV kind of has vegetables. Yeah, so it's not exactly clear what's going on there. But the idea seems to be we're going to stay away from these symbols of imperial power. And uh, we're going to give us 10 days. We'll do an experiment. We'll show you that we end up being in better shape than the folks who are uh, eating the king stuff. And and there's not really a case to make that, like the text says that we don't want to be defiled, mm. but there's no law anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, in any tradition that is known from this period, that prohibits them from, one, eating meat, uh, or two, drinking wine. Yeah, it was very confusing to me. I was just yeah. like, why, though? <laughs> it never <laughs> and, says, and, it never gives us a good why. And, and I think this is probably, we're going to get to it later, but this is coming from a later time period than it is set, mm. where we have larger empires trying to impose uh, cultural restrictions on Judaism, and one of the things is dietary mm -hmm. restrictions and identity markers. And so, in my opinion, what's going on here is they're saying, we're not going to internalize these markers, not only of Babylonian identity, but of Babylonian hegemony. We are going, and, and hegemony is, uh, means like rule by some foreign entity of some kind. Somebody has come in um, and is ruling over you. And so, in my opinion, this is a rejection of that and saying we're going to maintain our own ethnic identity by uh, avoiding the foods that you are providing to us and just eating our own foods, even though there's no actual um, requirement or expectation that they eat only vegetables and drink only water. So I think I, that's a that makes sense. But I am right. I didn't read any explicit... Uh, reason, right? There's no explicit reason listed in the in the book about it, why they don't. It just it. says it. Um, they don't want to be defiled, okay. but there's no explanation of why these foods would defile them, and it doesn't make sense given what we know about Judaism in the in that time period. And it, well, yeah, and and it also like the other thing that confuses me about it is that later. Daniel's totally happy to take the robes and the gold and the whatever. <laughs> yeah, anyway, anyway yeah. we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So, and and this is why. There's an argument to, to be had about whether this book is trying to help people incorporate themselves into the empire. Is this a little more in the style of Esther, where it's like, we're going to ingratiate ourselves. This is how you do it successfully so that you can work within the empire. Or is this a book saying, no, we're going to be insular and we're going to stay keep ourselves separated from it because it's not entirely consistent. Yeah. Um, so... There has been uh, a lot of debate about what the ultimate goal of this book is in that regard. Yeah. 
So that brings us to chapter two, where we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who has a bad night one time, uh, a bad trip of some kind, and says to his court magicians and prophets and everybody, I had a dream. You got to tell me what the dream was, and then you got to interpret it for me, or I'm going to kill you, which is not something that anyone ever did anciently, (laughs) but makes for a cool story. Um, I guess it. I mean, it just seems absurd. He's a, he's like he's like bit. you have to interpret my dream, but first you have to tell me what the dream was so that yeah. I know that you're legit. Yeah, what am I paying you for if you can't <laughs> even do this one thing? Uh, it, remind, and so, it reminds me of the uh, the Far Side comic where the the cops bust in on a on a fortune teller and they're like, because you didn't know we were coming, that's why you're under arrest. <laughs> And, uh, and, and Daniel comes waltzing in and uh, is like, yeah, I'll tell you. Uh, and this is a dream about this statue, which, uh, which is, has a few different parts to it. I'm going to pull it up and, so I can read uh, directly from... I got it, if you want me to. You got to. it? Yeah, go ahead. Read the, read the description. The head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its midsection and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron... Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Mm. Yes, um, and there have been a lot of uh, of artistic depictions of this statue. Sure, but this is this is kind of the the fourfold kingdoms uh, vision, and there have been a lot of different attempts to uh, to make sense of this over the years. From the initial publication of this book, within a century of this book having been written, the Romans take over, and so. Almost immediately, you have a bunch of people trying to read the Romans into it, which means it, uh, you have to reconfigure other things. But basically, this is uh, the kingdom of Babylon, uh, the kingdom of Media, the Median kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Persia, and then uh, the Hellenistic kingdom, beginning with Alexander the Great, and then the the toes and the clay at the bottom is representative of what is known as the Diadochi or the Diadochoi, which is the the battle of successors after the death of Alexander the Great. And this is one of the indications of when this book was written, uh, because it goes right up to a period where there's a lot of detail and a lot of accuracy, and then it's like, and then the end times are going to come, and then everything (laughs) is, is no longer accurate. (laughs) <laughs> so if you if you think at all critically about hmm who may have been writing this and when uh, it's when there's the most detail when there's um, the most accuracy and when they say God returns it's right before that right um, and, it t- and this- it, as it turns out uh, the easiest way to write a prophecy is to write it about the time that you're actually in right now as, right. and pretend that it was written a hundred years ago. And this and this was something that was noticed by non-Christian uh, and non-Jewish authors in like the third century CE. There was a, a pagan writer who was like, "Yeah, I read your book, uh, Daniel, there, and based on you know, a lot of stuff is accurate, a lot of stuff is inaccurate. You get the most detail right around this period in we now refer to as the Maccabean period." Uh, in biblical studies, and then it suddenly gets totally inaccurate when it talks about God swooping in and saving everybody. So it seems like it was right there in the middle of the second century that <laughs> it was written. And and you have Christian authors who are like, no, 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 um, <laughs> getting a little annoyed with this with this pagan author. But um, this statue has to be reinterpreted if you want this to be something that goes any further forward in time than Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. I mean, we will talk about later. I feel like it's pretty obvious that the iron uh, is the United States of America, <laughs> and the clay parts are just the uh, the dirty liberals or something. <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm not going to argue with you there, but the uh, <laughs> one of the and and we'll we'll talk a little bit of more about it later, but one of the keys to reinterpreting things, particularly if you want to get the Romans in there, that's what most folks want to do because that allows them to demonize either the Catholic Church or the Roman Empire or whatever. Uh, right. But you have to combine the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And this is problematic for a number of reasons, um, but the presence of the Medes is problematic uh, in its own right. So that's yeah. chapter two. We get the okay. statue. 
before we go on to chapter three, let's pause for a brief break and then okay. we'll come back with some more Daniel. Exciting. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. All right, we're back. Uh, we, when we last left Daniel, he was uh, he was interpreting dreams, doing a great mm-hmm. job. Nebuchadnezzar's yep. happy. We're on to chapter three. Go. Chapter three, we've got this uh, commandment. Somebody says, hey, we got this statue for you, king, and we're going to say everybody has to worship it or you get thrown in a fire. And Daniel and, uh, well, ye old companions uh, refuse to worship it, and they get thrown in the fire, and they are not harmed. And Nebuchadnezzar famously uh, looks into the fire and says, I see a fourth, like unto the Son of Man, according to the King James Version, uh, <laughs> which is a mistranslation of the Aramaic. Pretty straightforward in, in Aramaic. It says uh, bar Elohim, which means not the Son of God, but a Son of the gods, plural. And so okay. this is this is a Babylonian king representing a Babylonian perspective, uh, but we still have this Semitic convention about referring to a member of a certain class by saying a son of that class. Mm. So a son of the gods is a god. A right. son of the prophets is a prophet. A son of Adam is a human being. So, so it's just saying that looks like a, a deity, in there with them, and that has been reinterpreted as a reference to Jesus by later <laughs> readers. Right. Uh, then we get into chapter four. We have uh, the king sees, has a dream about a tree, and Daniel interprets this as a reference to uh, seven years and basically self-imposed exile, where the king is going to leave uh, human civilization and go dwell in the desert and, um, and get just hairy. tweak out for a while. Yeah, get get hairy. It's the Eat Burning grass. Man. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably. And get- uh, and this this is connected with uh, the idea that uh, a king at the end of the Babylonian empire named Nabonidus actually used to uh, would go into the Arabian peninsula and just hang out for years at a time while his son Belshazzar kind of co-regent in his stead. So we have this weird reassignment of the things that Belshazzar does. By the way, Belshazzar is the one who's all into dream interpretation and stuff like that. Belshazzar was the hippie, not Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, oh. But Daniel is reassigning all these things to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Dan- Daniel the book, not the character. Daniel the book, right. Um, uh, can and- I also mention one thing that happens, one weird thing that happens in chapter four, which is that suddenly, like we get through most of chapter four, and then in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar comes back from his exile, and suddenly the book, the rest of the book, is in first person by the character of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's like, <laughs> it, it's like suddenly it says, when that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. That wasn't how this book, how this <laughs> chapter started. Yeah. It never goes back to that. It's yeah. very weird. Do you, is there yeah. a reason for that? Or do we, do, it, that's not a part of it, like a, a a known convention or anything, is it? Um, there's some coming in and out of, of uh, first person, and this is a part of um, the idea is that you're you're trying to represent. You know how um, you remember when Blair Witch Project came out, the found footage <laughs> uh-huh. genre. Uh huh. 
It, it's kind of like we're going to mix in these different genres to give it a flavor of authenticity. And okay. so like that, that's why they would say, and then there was this letter and it's, I, the king, write this letter. And, you know, it's the same person writing the whole thing, but they're switching voice and everything in order to give it kind of a, a flavor of authenticity. Um, <laughs> I love the idea of biblical found footage. That is, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's. It's really what's going on with a lot of these in a lot of these places where um, it's like, and then there was a decree made, and and here's the decree. Yeah. We we happen to find it. Then we get into chapter five, and now we've got Belshazzar, who's supposed to be Nebuchadnezzar's son. Belshazzar was not Nebuchadnezzar's son. And th this is funny. I, I see a lot of videos where people are like, critical scholarship is all garbage. They used to think there was never somebody named Belshazzar, and then we found an inscription about Belshazzar. And one. This does not remotely solve the overwhelming majority of the historical and textual problems with the book of Daniel. But right. two, that discovery was made in the 19th century. So when critical scholarship was still in its infancy trying to learn how to walk. So yeah. um, it's not the, the slam dunk that a lot of people think it is. But also for every like I. I love the criticisms of any science or any any academic study where they're like, aha, you were wrong, and therefore yeah. everything is we should throw it all out the window. What what yeah. are you talking about? Being <laughs> being wrong and then assimilating new ideas and changing to and uh, making those adjustments, that's what's that's what scholarship's all about. Yeah, that's that's the scientific process. However, when you're coming from a position where it's it's a zero sum game, and you're thinking in in black and white binaries of right. inerrancy and you know totally worthless. It has to be the one and not the other. And if you right. can and if you can show error, then that means they obviously belong on the other side of that binary, which means they can be dismissed. Which is it's kind of a a methodological shoehorn that was developed over generations of, of trying to come up with more and more sophisticated ways to make the apologetic position sound more rational and two, um, to reinforce it against rationalism. So right. it, it is both adopting and at the same time rejecting a lot of the principles of rationalism to try to um, reinforce itself. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> we get into chapter five, and now we got Belshazzar is the king that we are having to deal with. Yeah. And this is where we get, he's like, hey, remember the all the vessels we took from the temple? Let's bring them out and let's just play with them for a little bit. And we'll, um, you know, we'll, let's, we'll, let's play temple, you guys. Yeah, we'll let's play. <laughs> Um, let's toss the Jewish not pigskin around in the backyard for a little right. bit. And then we get the finger of God writing many, many tackle parson uh, on the wall, freaking everybody out, um, really killing the vibe. <laughs> and, um, and then we have to have Daniel come in and uh, interpret what's going on here and the idea. And it is, is just a hand that just appears yeah. out of nowhere and just scribbles yeah. on the wall. That, yep. that would be pretty freaky. <laughs> and did, those those words are they words that actually mean anything in any language, or were they nonsense words that Daniel? And that's why they needed Daniel to interpret it. Um, no, they're um, they're words, but they don't make a ton of sense in uh, in any kind of context. Um, mene is a mina, so that's a a, a unit of measurement. Okay. Um, <clears throat> tekel is a, a shekel in Aramaic. Surprisingly enough, the shin. Letter the sh sound is um, is usually written with a with a character that indicates t. Okay. Parson means half mina or mina. So you've got uh, a mina, a mina, a shekel, and a half mina. So a yard, a yard, a dollar, and uh, a foot and a half. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. It's uh, it doesn't make a, a whole ton of sense, which is why they need to bring Daniel in to right. say, hey, what's going on here? Because that's a confusing thing for a mystical hand to just throw up on your on your right. wall. Right. That's that's not that's not entirely helpful. Uh the law of parsimony is uh doesn't hold here. Uh and <clears throat> yeah, the perspicuity of scripture is uh, a little a little muddled. And then Daniel says, Hey, this is a you're a loser, you're you're you know, you're screwing around with uh, with sacred things uh, like you shouldn't be. And so your kingdom is going to be taken away and it's going to be given to the Medes and then to the Persians. Uh, and that's and, what happened. And Daniel does not get murdered for this. Like, no, the king's he says, like, he says sweet. the worst thing in the world. Yeah. 
Doesn't he also say that that the king's gonna die? That Belshazzar's yep. gonna die? Yep. And, and Belshazzar's very- just like. Cool, man. Thanks. Here's the robe yeah. I promised you. Yeah, you deserve you deserve um, a reward for all this. And then in that very night, uh, the king dies. And then we get somebody who goes by Darius or Darius, if you're nasty, uh, the Mede. And the there was there was no such character or figure oh. in history. Um, Darius or Darius was a Persian. And and here's where I'm going to talk briefly about what's going on with the Medes. Uh, okay. The Median kingdom, if you can call it a kingdom, it was not large, it was not influential, uh, is it up in the mountains to the east of, uh, of Mesopotamia. It's a part of uh, modern-day Iran. And the Medes were not relevant to the Babylonians. The Medes were somebody that the Persians dealt with as the Persians were making their way to go down to take over Babylon. And so the Medes are only relevant from a Persian perspective. Which tells us one thing, that this part of the book of Daniel is being written through a Persian interpretive lens. In other words, they are trying to represent this history from a Persian point of view, which means this is being written later, Persian period at the earliest, probably uh, even a little later than that. And so the Medes have no relevance to Babylon uh, or to the Jewish folks uh, who were in Babylon. They only have relevance if you're reconstructing this history from a Persian point of view and doing so inaccurately. As were well. there Persian Jews? Is that who we're talking about? We're, we're talking about Jewish folks who are uh, a part of the Persian Empire. Because so, okay. Persia um, uh, takes over, conquers Babylon in 539 BCE. Okay. And so you this thus beginneth the Persian period. And so the Jewish folks who are living in exile are now under a new empire. And the Persian empire is a little more accommodating. Um, and so it seems that this is probably someone educated within uh, the Persian system or something like that. So, okay, sorry, let me just make sure I've got this right. We have the Babylonian. So the exile is not just Babylonian exile. They remain exiled as the Persians take over. Right. And the Persians are the ones who actually allow the folks to return back to the land of Israel. This is Cyrus who does Cyrus, this. right. Yes. Got it. Okay. Right. That has all right. We've uh mm-hmm. oh, pew pew pew. I'm I'm getting it. I'm starting <laughs> to understand. Okay. So uh in chapter six, we have Darius the Persian. Uh, king who um, has this, the it says that the folks are trying to get back at the Jewish people and they don't know what to do. So they tell the king, hey, release this decree. You're not allowed to pray to anybody but the king for 30 days. Or you get thrown into where? <laughs> the den the, of lions! The den of lions. You can <laughs> rent the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Um, so this is the, the famous story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. And again, we have resolution in the end. The king rewards Daniel. Everybody's happy. Uh, and cue credits. And then the next chapter, we have a fla- <laughs> we're starting with a flashback. Because right. suddenly we're back to Belshazzar. Yeah, it was um, very but this confusing. Is, yes. Now, chapter seven begins the second half of the book. Remember, we have chapters one through six, which are these court tales, and they're primarily divided into two different types. We have um, tales of conflict and tales of contest. And so the conflict is where you have the locals saying, we're going to get those Jewish people. And so they're like, we're going to build a statue and you have to worship it, or we're going to tell the king to make it so you can't pray. And so that's that's the conflict. And then the contest is who can answer this grand question about this dream? Who can interpret this? All the My locals fail. Three. Yeah, Dan and Daniel has to show up and show that he can do it. So these are this is this is kind of a stock literary genres from this time period. But that's right. one through six. Okay. And then seven through twelve is apocalyptic visions. And we're going to go back to Belshazzar and we get the famous vision of the son of man who comes to the ancient of days. And and I think the most fascinating part about this story, apart from the, the fact that we're using um, uh, rider of the clouds, storm deity imagery, uh, we've got the son of man coming to the ancient of days. Our oldest Greek translation of this passage, there's a mistranslation. Because this preposition coming to the Ancient of Days in um, Greek would be heos, 
but in the, our earliest Greek version, it's not heos, it's just hos, which is very close, but means as. And so it mm. says the son of man comes as the ancient of days, which means the son of man is a manifestation of the ancient of days or God. And okay. so here is kind of the beginning of this notion that there is some special figure. And remember, son of man is this convention where to refer to a member of the group, you call them a son of that group. So it just means a mortal, a human. Right. Now it's going to take on titular qualities. It's going to become this special title because there's this son of man who's manifesting the ancient of days. And so this is probably related to some of the Anarchic literature and other tales about this, this son of man figure from the apocalypse. Okay. But and, that's and- chapter seven. And is that sort of the 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 kernel from which the the Trinity concept are, is is bubbling up? Or I I would argue that it is one um, one bubble coming up to the surface of that later um, rolling royal of uh, of the development of the Trinity. We're gonna have to um, talk about the Trinity at some. point. Oh yeah that, yeah yeah we'll, we're gonna we'll, we'll get to it we'll get yeah, to it guys we'll get there. Um, and then we've got this uh, in chapter eight, another eschatological vision um, where we have Persia. That means ends of days, guys. That's end times, yeah. End times, yeah. Which are soon. Um, if, <laughs> Any day uh, now. If, yeah, if uh, TikTok is to be believed. Um, we have Persia, Media, and Greece. And so now we're actually explicitly naming the country of Greece rather than earlier where we just said, uh, yeah, shins of bronze and stuff. So, a really um, powerful country place. Yeah. Um, and then we get to chapter nine. Now we're going back to uh, Darius or Darius, and we have this vision of 70 weeks, which is something that many of you may have heard come up on social media within the last mm. uh, several weeks, because um, this, uh, this has to do with the rapture. This has to do with when uh, the end times are coming. So uh, basically the idea is something's going to happen in 70 weeks of years. And so that's 70 times 7, and that's uh, 490, and and then you've got these years. And scholars have, like, from the moment this was published, people are like, ooh, we got to figure out, we got to calculate, we got to try and find out what's going on here. And um, even early Christians were like, ooh, it means this, that, and the other. And how is Rome coming to play? And again, it's got to be your bull. Um, And there's not really a a good answer except for one. So we start with 70 weeks, and then we're going to have a week of something. And then we're going to have 62 weeks of something. And then we're going to have another week of something. Now, when you try to lay this out end to end, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it seems to be talking about how long the Babylonian exile is going to last, which means it's starting around 605, 604 BCE, which is where Jeremiah says we're going to have 70 years of this. But if you understand this first week to run concurrently with the 62 weeks, which is a which is a logical way to understand what's going on here, 62 weeks of years that gives us uh, 439-ish years, something like that. But if you do the math and you start at 605, 604 BCE, it brings you to 171, 170 BCE, where it says an anointed one will be killed. And guess what? The high priest, Onias III, was assassinated in 170 BCE. And remember when we think all this is taking place? Right, right about, around this time period. Okay. And so here we get this very accurate prophecy, X of N2 <laughs> prophecy, where if we start when the Babylonian exile traditionally is identified as starting, and we count 62 weeks of years, we get to the assassination of Onias III. I'm still confused on the BCE. weeks of years things. Does that, are you saying like you just multiply the number by seven and yes. then you call that year? Okay. Yeah. Like a so, week is um, seven, so that... Weeks of years is not a real thing, you guys. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna point that out. Yeah. So then we get into chapter ten, and now we're dealing with Cyrus, the Persian, uh, who is explicitly mentioned in Isaiah 45 as God's anointed, and in the Greek translation, God's Christ. 
So uh, this is wow. Cyrus the Persian. Uh, yeah. We have this story about the prince of princes of Persia and the and the prince of Greece, and they're fighting against uh, Michael, who is the archangel, the head prince. And this is a reflection of the early idea that every nation had its own patron deity. Right. In this period, in the Hellenistic period, the deities all get squished down and they're all angels now. And so okay. prince of, of Persia, prince of Greece, uh, Michael the archangel, these are the guardian angels over the nations. Um, and then for chapter 11, we go back to Darius and uh, we have this vision of kings of the south and kings of the north. Now, here we're talking about the, the Diadochi, the successors to Alexander the Great. In the north, we have the Seleucids. In the south, we have the Ptolemies. Egypt uh, has, is the Ptolemaic rulers. Uh, you have the Seleucids in Syria, and, and they're constantly doing battle where Israel is right in the middle. And so control of Israel is is being traded back and forth. Another indication that this is being written around the 170s, 160s BCE. And then chapter 12 is the conclusion of the book where we have Michael come in and saying, great job. Um, we're going to wrap it all up now. And then these two other individuals show up. And the book is drawn to a convenient and perfect close. So that is a that is a short and uh, and chaotic run through of what's. I going think that's on excellent. In the book of uh, I think let's let's leave it there and take another break. We'll be right back with trying to make sense of everything we just heard. All right. So we've run through sort of the plot points of Daniel, and I, and along the way, I think we've discussed a lot of the things that we need to know uh, about the book, but. Man, yeah. So, talk us through a make little sense bit more. Of it. Uh, yeah, make it make sense. <laughs> make it make sense. Yeah. So, uh, when we look at all of these prophecies and what they seem to be aiming at, what we get at is that this text is coming together around between 167 and 164 BCE, which is a period of oppression uh, of the Jewish communities on the part of a Seleucid ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And this is the, this great, this horn that is talked about. Uh, this is the big baddie, the bad guy that's um, causing all this trouble. And so the scholarly consensus is that it was in this period when this text was written, and we're looking back and we're setting this in a much earlier time period so that the prophecies in between the setting and the actual composition of the text seem like they're all true. And the point is kind of, particularly of the apocalyptic part, is to kind of fantasize about God stepping in and pulling back the fabric of reality to show who's actually in charge, to show that God is going to deliver Israel and that there's going to be this triumph over evil. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the epitome of that evil. And is there a sense in which, because uh, I know a lot of times when you're under an oppressive ruler, you can't write directly about that oppressive ruler without being, you know, murdered or whatever. So is there a <laughs> sense that they, that they were using this historical time period that was meaningful to them as a as as a sort of analog or as a stand-in for their current situation, but uh, so that they could write about it kind of in coded language, so that they you know they didn't run afoul of Antiochus. Is, is I'm, Antiochus I'm, is that am I saying Antiochus? That right? Yeah. Um, some people say Antiochus, but that that's because they don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm mean. Just kidding. <laughs> I still have made a, a decision about Darius or Darius, so I'm, I'm just. Um, just joking. Um, that's that's certainly frequently a part of this, but there are a number of different rhetorical purposes that are converging here. One is to try to arrogate more authority to this, because if somebody just says Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes is a bad dude, and let's <laughs> hope God comes in and saves us. That's not as effective as right. saying, I found this text from this ancient prophet, and this ancient prophet says, don't know who this is, but there's a person who's going to be coming who's a really bad dude, and God's going to deliver us. That's a lot more powerful. That's a lot more authoritative. And so 
kind of injecting it with that artificial um, antiquity and this uh, this notion of real prophecy provides a lot more power, a lot more authority to the text. And remind me, if we're if this is being written in the one sixties, mm-hmm. uh, the the exilic period was in in the where, where was that? The five hundreds. Five hundreds. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right. So this is uh, this is uh, the second temple has already been built, and now we're having Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes threatening to destroy the second temple. He's defiling it, um, and and so the prophecies. In the early the earliest part of this, where we have the history of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and everything, the history is not incredibly accurate. We've got this Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, which is not accurate. He was the son of Nabonidus. Uh, we have uh, some messed up things going on there. Then we get the Medes, who were never involved in Babylon at all and are only kind of a historical relic of a Persian memory. Right. Um, and so this is being, this is coming from the Persian period. And then we're getting the most accuracy and the most detail once we get down to this big bad ruler who's going to come in. And then uh, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, dies around 164, 163 BCE. And the deliverance of God that is prophesied, that is on the doorstep, never materializes. And so that's what makes that period the most likely period of composition. We have Greek loanwords in the text. We have Persian loanwords in the text. But let's talk a little bit about scholars, how scholars have reconstructed how this came together. Because it was not just a, a dude in 167 right. BCE who sat down and wrote all of this. Some of these stories probably come from the late Babylonian period or uh, the early Persian period, and well, so especially many... especially if the text was originally in multiple languages, obviously it's not just a dude. Yeah, and and this has been a difficult thing to resolve as well. And I think Carol Newsom's argument again, check out Carol Newsom's um, commentary on this if you want a, a fuller case. But I, I think she makes a good case for how we got the languages the way they were because they they don't align with how scholars think the text came together exactly, but. Um, we probably have these court tales, again, tales of conflict and tales of contest uh, in chapters four through six that were probably in circulation, uh, late Babylonian period, early Persian period. They were probably edited later on. Things were changed, some things were added in, some things were taken out. They're supplemented by additional court tales uh, from chapters two and three. So we've got four through six is the core. And then we're going to add on chapters two through three. And then Daniel one gets added as an introduction. And now we are, um, and the the court tales of one through six are Aramaic. Daniel one is Hebrew. And so the, the introduction is coming in in Hebrew to kind of uh, provide a, a reassurance that that this is more native. This is not this this entirely foreign thing. We're in a period now where where Hebrew is part of our national identity, and so we want it to be in Hebrew. So we have a Hebrew introduction added to the beginning, and then we have what are we going to do about seven through twelve? Because seven is also in Aramaic. It's uh, eight through twelve that are in Hebrew, and so wh- one way to solve this is to think that this apocalyptic vision in Daniel chapter seven, which is distinct from the apocalyptic visions of Daniel eight through twelve, was next to be added on. So it was four through six, then we get two through three, then we get the intro in chapter one, and then we get chapter seven added on in the Hellenistic period, uh, and then we have uh, eight through twelve that were added. Uh, toward the very end. Uh, that would have probably been what was composed by the uh, whoever was writing between 167 and uh, 164 BCE. And they probably would have done a tiny bit of light fiddling with what came before. Sure. And that gives us a Hebrew introduction. And then we have the Aramaic stuff, which includes this late apocalyptic text. And then we go switch back to Hebrew for the author, who again wants to emphasize this um, this Hebrew identity 
by adding 8 through 12 in Hebrew at the very end. And so the text probably um, originates, some of the stories originate in the late Babylonian period, but the text primarily comes together in the Persian and Hellenistic period and is finalized between around 167 and 164 BCE. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I said at the beginning of, of this of the episode that I sensed that it was multiple people writing. I think it's interesting that because once you tune your mind to this doesn't have to be written by the same people, this, you know, once, you, once you're thinking along those lines, it becomes obvious yeah. when, when not always, but it frequently becomes obvious when something has like, whoa, we have just made a major shift. It's very unlikely that this was the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's a dogma that that a lot of scholars are uh, have to to wrestle with. Because on the devotional side of things, you want it to all be from one author. You want it to be uh, historical and historically accurate. And that's a difficult thing to kind of maintain and also engage with the text as it is. It's yeah. just you can't make sense of a lot of this unless you are open to multiple authorship. And once you are open to multiple authorship, so much stuff falls into place. Right. It's not all perfect. There are still complexities. There are still arguments about, well, how do we solve this issue? And, and um, for instance... Chapter 7 being added after the introduction of chapter 1 and before chapters 8 through 12. Like, that's not how all scholars resolve this, but I think that's that's the one that makes the most sense to me. But yeah, if, if you're not open to multiple authorship, then you're forced to try to impose these assumptions upon the text to make the text make sense. And you can't really make it make sense as a single production of the uh, early to mid uh, early to late babylonian period i mean daniel is is writing stories for 80 years if we if we take all this seriously right. um and and there's just not a way to make that make sense well i think that yeah i mean i it's a fascinating book and and it's it's a wonderful like sort of microcosm to look at these issues, these issues of yeah. of, of, of multivocality, and and you know it's it it it's a great place to sort of localize that discussion because it's it is so different, and it you know it makes so yeah. many leaps, and and I love hearing about you know the Persian period and the Babylonian period, like that's actually really cool when you think about <laughs> it in the in those terms. Oh, it's it's fascinating, and and one of the things I love to hear from from uh, fans of my social media content is how much more interesting the Bible becomes when you're open to this. Yeah. Folks who have never taken the Bible seriously are fascinated by these things when they're approached critically. Uh, and and one more thing that I didn't mention, but. Our earliest textual witness to the book of Daniel is from the Dead Sea Scrolls and paleographically has been dated to around 115-ish BCE. In oh, other wow. words, only about 50 years removed from the actual composition yeah. of the text. And so it quickly, most likely it very quickly became a very popular text if we already have copies uh, at Qumran within 50 years of its composition. Wait, sorry, I suddenly I'm realizing we so is that Dead Sea Scroll uh, uh attestation of Daniel is that one document written in both the Hebrew and the Aramaic? Um I think we only have fragments of it. Okay. And so I don't oh, know right. that of we course. have a single manuscript that preserves both Hebrew and Aramaic, but uh, that seems to be our earliest attestation where we have everything preserved, yeah. Hmm. Um, oh, I, I think I forgot to mention as well, um, or at least I may not have <laughs> accurately represented it. There is a theory that chapter one was added in Aramaic, but then translated into Hebrew. Okay. So, um, so that is a, another thing that 
could have happened. Um, but I don't remember if we I, have a manuscript that preserves both Hebrew and Aramaic from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll Somebody what, will I, know better I blame than me. the whole Aramaic thing on the Chaldeans. I think that they were the they were. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say I had to go down a little Chaldean uh, rabbit hole? Yeah, because as I was reading it, I was, I you know, the, in chapter two it says, "So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned." And I was like, "Wait a minute, I'm going to look up what a Chaldean is." And I'm only saying it right because you already corrected me before we started the show. <laughs> it's not Chaldeans, but it's Chaldean. Right. Anyway, right. I looked that up. Because I'm like, oh, what kind of magic user is a Chaldean? And I went, no, it's just. It's, they're from a different country? Uh, yeah, a different part of the Babylonian Empire. So it would have been a different ethnic group. <laughs> it just feels the- like, so they commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Canadians to come in. And, <laughs> yeah. Like, it just felt so weird that they were just, a, yeah. that that was just a sort of geographic group of people. I don't understand that. <laughs> apparently, they were, the, apparently the Chaldeans were very, very mystical. Well, yeah, that they would associate different ethnic groups with different uh, different talents and and different industries and and things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, the Iranians were all astrologers. So, uh-huh. right, um, that's right. Yeah. So the three wise uh, men. We'll get to yep. them. The Magi. Yeah. Yep. All right. Oh, and there weren't three of them. Anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, thanks to you guys for tuning in. We appreciate it. Uh, if you would like to become a part of keeping our show going and making us very happy. You can become a patron of the show by going over to patreon.com slash data over dogma, where you can get an ad free version of every episode at a certain level. At another level, you can get not only that, but our after party where there's extra bonus content. Uh, So thank you so much to all of our patrons. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do so. Contact at data over dogma pod.com is the way to do that. And other than that, we'll just see you next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.